That's quite a lot of stuff. Let's take a deep breath. Okay. Well, good morning, my beloved family and friends in Christ. And to our friends who are visiting us this morning, we welcome you to our worship service. Today, we will start looking at the book of First Samuel, First Samuel, found in the Old Testament. And we will slowly work our way through the first seven chapters of this book, focusing on the prophet Samuel, the prophet from God's grace. We'll start today on chapters 1 and 2, which tells of Samuel's mother, Hannah. Before we get into today's message, let us pray. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Saviour. And make the book live to me. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Who doesn't like a good story? I do. And most of you will realise by now, I actually love watching movies. Going from the number of illustrations I made about movies in my past messages especially those with a good storyline. And like most good stories, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10 works out according to a plot line. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 8 gives us an introduction of thought. The author introduces the story and tells us the problem. He describes a distressing situation the main character, Hannah, is in. First Samuel 9, chapter 1, verse 9 to the end of the chapter tells us how it was solved and how Hannah, Hannah's distress was interrupted. And First Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 gives us almost like a director's commentary. You know, you have those special edition DVDs with the director's commentary behind. It kind of gives us like a director's commentary, giving us a behind-the-scene look and tells us how to interpret the story from the director's eyes. Or in this case, as seen from the eyes of the author of 1 Samuel, as shown in the prayer and song of Hannah. I will not be reading from this entire section of scripture today, but I will focus my reading mainly from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. So as keep this plot line in mind as we work through today's passage from 1 Samuel. And please follow along with me in your Bibles. However, this story is also a real story based on Old Testament history written by an author with a theological intent. And just what is the intent of the author of 1 Samuel? He tells his readers that their ruler God cares and brings rescue in small ways and in big ways to his people who are in distress. And what is the aim of this passage? Scripture tells us that Christian can trust and delight in our God who will bring rescue in the midst of all our distress. Nelson Mandela. I speak his name and immediately most of you would recognize his name. If you have read any books about him or seen a movie telling us about his life, 
you recognize that much of his life is in small, reflecting the struggles in South Africa against racial discrimination in large. And that is what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 to 2. Remember that this story occurs near the end of the period of Judges in the history of Israel. It's a difficult people, a difficult period, and the people are in distress. Although this is a story about Hannah and her distress in small, but the story also reflects the trouble of God's people, the Israelites in large. And to understand this, we need to look at what happened so far in Israel's history. We see God begins to enact His rescue plan to reverse the impact of the fall and sin on His creation with His calling out of Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. God promises Abraham a people, a land, and a blessing in Genesis 12. Abraham trusts God and goes to the land God calls him to. And the rest of the book of Genesis basically tells the account of Abraham's offspring. By the time we get to Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, great-grandson, the small tribe of Abraham's descendant, driven by famine, seeks refuge in Egypt. By the time of Moses, they have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they go from being guests to slaves. And the rest of Exodus to Deuteronomy describe how God, through Moses, rescues the Israelites out of Egypt in the great Exodus event and brings them to the very edge of the promised land. Joshua takes over for Moses and leads the Israelites in conquest of the promised land. But it didn't really end happily ever after because the generations of Israelites that came after Joshua did not know God. All the work he has done for them and each of them, if you remember from the book of Judges, the constant refrain, each of them did what was right in their own eyes. This is a difficult period and God's people are in distress. This then is the period of Judges. This is the context where we find the story of Hannah. And this is where our large God who cares works to bring rescue to His people in small ways and large ways. He interrupts Hannah's distress and through her son Samuel brings about a transition from the period of the judges to the time of the kings. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, the beginning of God's work. Here, we are first introduced to the story and the author tells us the problem. In some sense, the problem in the home of Ramatim Zophim is not new. There's nothing new. Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, had no children. We see this in verse 2. The Lord had closed her womb, verse 5. And though it's of little comfort to Hannah, we remember that she is not the first barren woman that Scripture records. We recall Sarah and how in Genesis 11.30, the Scripture writes, And now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Hannah shares in this fellowship of barrenness. And like Sarah, she suffers insults and torments from the second wife of her husband. Because you see, Alkina had also married a second wife, Pernina, and she had children. Boy, did she have many children. 
And though Elkanah loved Hannah and cared for her, as seen by his giving her a double portion of the sacrificial meal, verse 5, perhaps in some way to comfort her, Hannah was still distressed. In the society of the times, you see, barrenness and being without a child is a stigma. This alone would have been enough for Hannah to endure. But having it being rubbed in constantly was intolerable. Pernina apparently used the meals during the special worship occasions in Shiloh to provoke Hannah. We see this in verses 6 to 7. I mean, you can almost imagine the scene. I mean, with apologies to our friends from Scotland and from elsewhere, if this were to be in Singapore around the table, it will go something like this. Wow, Hannah, you got so much food. Ah. Got braised duck and roast pork. Even double boiled abalone soup. You have so much food, can finish or not? Never mind if there's too much food. You can always ask your children to help you finish. Oh, oops. What am I saying? You don't have any children. And ho, oh, Hannah, did I tell you? I'm pregnant again. I'm expecting another child. Year after year, Bernina would taunt and provoke Hannah. So much so that Hannah wept and was so distressed that she would not eat. Even the love and care shown by her husband, Elkanah, brought her little comfort in the midst of her sorrow. However, I love this, because in Scripture there's always a but and a however. It is in such anguish that God works to bring about a new period in Israel's history. God's history with His people often begins with nothing. As Pastor Dale Ralph Davis writes, God's tendency is to make our total inability His starting point. Our hopelessness and helplessness are no barrier to His work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop He delights to use for His next act. It's in such anguish that drove Hannah to desperately seek God in prayer, from which eventually comes Samuel. While we should not downplay the sorrow that Hannah felt, or even our own grief at our difficult circumstances, we can temper our despair by realizing that our unfavorable circumstances may be a prelude to God doing something big. One of the stories I remember well is that of a shoe salesman that shared the gospel with D.L. Moody, the well-known American evangelist. This stories have made its round in mission conference and evangelist conference. In fact, I actually visited the Moody Bible Institute. Okay, I'm a fanboy. Okay, that D.L. Moody actually founded when I was visiting Barnabas in Chicago. And as the story goes, this shoe salesman was a simple Sunday school teacher who in the course of selling shoes to Moody shared the story of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Alright, Mr. Moody, uh, what's your shoe size? Oh, size 9. Okay, got size 9. Also, I also have the story of Jesus. Do you want to hear that? You know, you know, little can he predict the impact that the conversion of one man would make on so many others and its impact on Christianity in North America. Little too did Hannah predict how her prayers to God will work out. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9-28 to tells us how the problem described 
in the first couple of verses were solved. How Hannah's distress was interrupted by God. There's no way Hannah could have realized that her plea for a child will result in the birth of Samuel, prophet and kingmaker who would eventually anoint David. And how King David, as God's anointed one, would deliver God's people from their enemies. I'm sure she would too be utterly amazed. No, but we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We see here that after the sacrificial meal ended, Hannah rushes to the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah, being deeply distressed and crying bitterly, was entirely oblivious to Eli the priest who was there. We see in verse 9 and 10. She had nowhere to turn in her sorrow but to the Lord of hosts, the ruler God who is in control over everything, including the hosts of heaven. We see this in 10 and 11. She makes a vow and pleads for her son, promising to dedicate him to God all the days of his life. Verse 11. And Hannah's petition is remarkable. Perhaps she remembers in the stories of young what God had said in Exodus 3, 7, that God has seen the affliction of his people who are in Egypt. She assumes, boldly assumes, that God who sees the trouble of his people can certainly see the distress of an individual servant. Hannah continues to pray with anguish and fervency, verse 12 and 13, trusting in God to rescue her. But rather than seeing her earnestness in prayer, Eli, the priest, mistook Hannah for a drunk. You see this in verse 13 and 14. Perhaps, you know, Eli taught here, here was another woman who maybe has had a wee bit too much to drink at the sacrificial meal, and he rebukes Hannah. But Hannah defends herself and replies that she has been pouring out her soul before the Lord. Verse 15. She asks that Eli not regard her as some worthless woman, for she has been deep in prayer, freely sharing with God her anxiety, her turmoil. Eli, recognizing his mistake, now instead blesses Hannah and asks God to grant Hannah's request. Verse 17. And Hannah, but perhaps hearing this, perhaps taking this as an indication of God's favor upon her, arose happily, went away, and ate. The Lord remembered Hannah, answered her prayers, and she soon gave birth to Samuel. Verses 19 and 20. God had interrupted her barrenness and distress and had granted her a son. Hannah's petition shows us that our God allows us to pour out our sorrows and our grief at His feet. We need not be totally dispassionate about situation. You know, in some quarters, you know, you know, we should maintain a scum, calm kind of uh, demeanor before God. No, we can pour out our emotions before God. God. Our God can handle our tears. It will make, not make him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distress at his feet. There's nothing too small, not too big to take to God in prayer. We see again in verses 21 to 28, Hannah fulfilling her vows. Alkanah continues to make his yearly pilgrimage to Shiloh. But Hannah waits till, until Samuel was weaned, which during that time was about three years old. So after three years, she said that she would bring Samuel for service in God's century, in verse 22. Her husband agrees, 
And when the time came, Hannah brings Samuel together with more than an ample sacrifice to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. There, they made sacrifices and brought Samuel to serve with Eli. And Hannah tells Eli in verses 26 to 28, recounting what has happened. Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, talking to Eli, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord God. For this child I prayed, and the Lord God has granted me my petition I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him, meaning Samuel, to the Lord God. As long as he lives, Samuel, he is lent to the Lord God. Her words pick up on Eli's blessing in verse 17. Hannah gratefully remembers God's gift of her son Samuel and places that gift fully at God's disposal. Hannah fulfills her promise made to God, dedicates Samuel fully to God and worship at Shiloh. There, Samuel, a prophet from God's grace, begins his service to God. But little did Hannah knows that her prayer and her dedication of a son will play such a large part in the history of Israel. Samuel, as part of God's plan, is to become God's prophet who guides God's people by God's word through the most critical period in the time of history, a transition from the period of judges to a time of kings. He will be God's specially chosen instrument for a major task in redemptive history, the outplaying of God's plan for rescuing a people for himself through a line of kings. Last year, some youths and young adults, some of them are with me in, uh, in this uh, congregation, we visited Pua, Thailand as part of our annual missions trip. And during the trip, we visited Mac and Narola, and Mac was our missions partner. And he arranged for the team to actually serve and minister at a Hmong village church. And I, I was thinking, yeah, we are a bunch of city kids, you know, we've got to stay overnight in the village, how would that go? Okay? We were to help with a, a prayer meeting on Saturday evening and a Sunday morning service, which means that the team had to stay overnight in a rather remote village. Before the team turned in for the night, I don't think they know this, I remembered asking Mac as to what time we'll meet in the morning. And those of you who actually know Mac, you know Mac in his cheeky way, he replied, when you wake in the morning, we'll meet for breakfast. I went, huh? He did tell me the time, you know, how... How would I know what time to set my alarm? You know, I repeated my question and he gave me the same answer. What's up? You know what I didn't know? Was there were many roosters in the village. And at 4.30 a.m. in the morning, okay, 4.30 a.m., they all raised their voices in one loud, incessant call from all around the house. It was loud. It was really, really loud. And it wasn't just from one direction. It came in stereo effect. Okay? The team, was, we were all awake without needing the alarm. Okay? And we met Mac for breakfast. Because Mac, when he spoke, knew something about the village, which we didn't. That we will have a stereo rooster alarm in the morning. His words to us, presupposes a certain knowledge. In like manner, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, Hannah's prayer 
presupposes a certain knowledge and belief of God. So as we read the prayer, let us try to understand it and interpret it from Hannah's eyes. And we see Hannah's prayers can actually be divided in three parts. If you have a pencil or pen, you can put a little mark in your Bible between the parts. They are verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 8, and verses 9 to 10. We see Hannah in verses 1 to 3, praising God for rescuing her from her particular distress. She has a large God who cares. So follow with me as I read. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Salvation, found in verse 1 here, has actually a broad usage and does not always mean forgiveness of sins, as we Christians always think of it. It can also mean rescue from any intolerable situation or rescue from great danger from which the person inevitably found himself and is unable to save himself from that. Okay? So here in verse 1, it has this particular physical meaning, physical sense. It means deliverance from distress that Hannah was in. She repeats, I, my personal pronouns, a number of times in verse 1. She get, begins with her own personal experience of God, delivering her from her barrenness. Then she breaks into a confession of faith in verse 2. There is no one else like God. And in verse 3, she warns all self-sufficient boasters, perhaps having penina in, also in mind. In this part of the prayer, we see Hannah gives praise to God for delivering her in her crisis and distress. We see here God bring deliverance in a small way. Of course, I'm sure for Hannah it matters hugely. But in verses 4 to 8, Hannah expands on the matter to the way God, how the way God delivered her is characteristic of how God rules his world. Follow with me as I read 4 to 8. The bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children, is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. Hannah moves now from how God delivers her in her own personal situation in verses 1 to 3, to how God generally works and rules in this world in verses 4 to 8. What God has done for Hannah is reflective of God's characteristic ways. When she is ready to fall, God gives her strength. When she was barren, God made her fruitful. When she was poor, God made her rich. God has raised her up. Her view of God expands to verses 9 to 10, to when God will fully and completely and visibly rule. She has a large God. We move from God bringing deliverance in a small way to a characteristic way 
in which God rules to the big ways in which God brings His deliverance. So let's finish up with verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Here is the final result, the last act. The deliverance of God's faithful ones, His covenant people, the destruction of the wicked, the shattering of God's opponents, the judging of the ends of the earth. Hannah expects God to accomplish this through His King, His anointed one. Yet, at this point, Israel has no king. So who could Hannah be referring to? By Hannah's time, the Israelites looking at the surrounding nations has a desire for a king. And it is through Hannah's son, Samuel, that King David was appointed and anointed. David partially fulfills the expectations for this king. But the complete fulfillment awaits a king greater than David. You might think, so what? Hannah has a son now. God has delivered her from her distress. But what big significance is this? God interrupting Hannah's distress is a sample of the way God works and of the way He will work when He finally brings His kingdom in His fullness. The deliverance God brings to Hannah in a small way is a foretaste a little demonstration of how God will bring His deliverance in a large way, when He does it in a large way. Hannah has a large God and He cares for her, delivering her in a small way. And He cares, this God cares for His people, delivering them in a big way and eventually in a huge way through the greatest Davidic king. But so now what? We can know that we have a large God who cares. Understanding this will mean that there is nothing too small or too big to take to God in honest prayer. Do you struggle with bringing things to God in honest prayer? Not so for Hannah. Perhaps you think the matter is too small or too insignificant to bring to God in prayer. You think that it is unimportant. Or conversely, you may feel that issue you are facing is too big for God to handle. Or maybe you think that you cannot bring your feelings, your fears, your sorrows, anxieties to pour it before God. But as we see in today's scripture passage, nothing is too mundane. Nothing is too small for God. Nothing is too big for a large God. And God cares. You can pour out your soul to Him. And by doing so, find comfort in our large God who cares. We also see in today's scripture passage that God brings deliverance in small ways which reflects His deliverance in large ways. We can train our eyes to see God bring His deliverance in small ways. Sometimes even in your ordinary daily life. I mean, this is especially important. I'm a Singaporean, so I can speak for us. I mean, we tend to be complainers. Okay? If we are able to train our eyes even to see things in the ordinary things of our life, to see how they point to God's great deliverance of us, of us that will change, our, change us inwardly. We will look and, and reflect on that and be so filled with gratitude. Okay? 
we need to look at, learn to look at this in our daily, ordinary lives. Nothing is mundane. The small things can be windows in which we catch a glimpse of heavenly realities. For example, by simply recovering from your illness can point to God finally delivering us in a large way from death and decay when we receive our resurrection bodies in the last days. Or when God delivers from a hunger when we eat, we recognize that the plants and animals that make up the food had to die so that we could live. And this points to how we will one day be delivered in a large way from our enemy death because someone has really died on our behalf. Or especially when we read Scripture, especially the Old Testament, we can learn to see how the Old Testament points to God's greatest deliverance in Christ Jesus. And do we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to, uh, to chapter 2, verse 10? We do see this. We see God delivering Hannah from her barrenness, a trap we first saw in God delivering Sarah from her barrenness. And we see this trap again, actually, in Luke chapter 1. The allusions of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 in Luke chapter 1. We see again there a barren woman, Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary. God delivers her from her distress and gives her a son. Remember what's the name of the son? John the Baptist. At both Samuel's and John's birth, a prediction is made that God has raised up the horn of salvation for his people. Hannah's son Samuel, at the culmination of his ministry, anoints and introduces King David. Elizabeth's son, John, at the fulfillment of his ministry, baptizes and introduces the greatest Davidic king, our Lord and King Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are God who hears and delivers us from all our distress. We thank you for Jesus, through whom we have received your greatest deliverance. We are rescued from sin, we are rescued from death. Teach us to trust and delight in you, and to go to you in honest prayer in our every distress. Thank you, Father, that you care for us. In Jesus' name.